Welcome to the See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. You are about to listen to a conversation between Colorado Mason University President John Marshall and Katie Packer Beeson, who is founding partner at Burning Glass Consulting and has worked on political campaigns across the country since 1988, and Rich Beeson, who served as the RNC political director and political director for Romney. Rich, Katie, we're thrilled to have you back on campus at Colorado Mason University. Um, thrilled to be able to have a conversation with you both about, I think, one of the topics that we're increasingly focused on here at CMU, and that is this idea around civility and uh, community development. So, so Rich and Katie, thanks for making time for us here at CMU and uh, coming in studio to have what we think are our conversations that matter. I wonder if you both, uh, we gave a, a quick intro that of course is insufficient, especially for this conversation. I wonder if you both might give us a little context of your background in the public sphere and uh, some of the experiences you had that'll maybe contextualize this conversation. So Katie, maybe you could start for us. Thanks for having me, President Marshall. Um, I got my start in politics actually through kind of a circuitous route. I had planned to go into broadcast communications and got my first job out of politics, somewhat out of desperation, uh, working for a state senator in Michigan because I went home to Michigan after school and was just looking for a job. Mm. And one of the first projects I worked on that was sort of outside of uh, official uh, Michigan state government was um, I was asked to go and work on a special election up in um, what we call the thumb of the Michigan mitten, uh, working for a state representative candidate in a race that was going to determine control of the state house. Um, and if we held on to that seat, Republicans would retain control. And if we lost that seat, then control would go to the Democrats. And um, so I uh, went up to work on that special election, got sort of bitten by the campaign bug, if you will. And uh, after that, proceeded to participate in uh, many, many, many state legislative campaigns, congressional campaigns, um, really got my juices going in presidential politics in 1996, working as the state director for the Dole for President campaign, which is something out of the history books now. Yeah. Um, went on to work uh, as a campaign operative managing uh, U.S. Senate and gubernatorial campaigns in Michigan. And then uh, ultimately, uh, my last official uh, presidential campaign job was as deputy uh, campaign manager for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Yeah, it seems hard to imagine. That was a, 10 years ago now, but um, but seems still pretty fresh in some regards and in others, the entire world's changed, right? Absolutely. And I and following that, uh, went, we're all uh, old campaign staffers go to die. I went to the <laughs> consulting world, and that's where I started uh, my company, Burning Glass Consulting. Um, but the it's a different world today than it once was uh, when I was first cutting my teeth in politics and even what it was 10 years ago. Um, and uh, whether you like Trump or don't like Trump, um, I think it's hard to argue that he has changed politics and has changed 
the way that campaigns engage with one another yeah. uh, dramatically. Um, and it's hard to probably point to one individual who has caused such dramatic change in the political landscape as Donald Trump. Well, I want to come back to that. But before we do that, Rich, maybe walk us through a little bit how how you got into the public sphere. Now, I, for those discerning ears in our audience, they probably are picking up a little of that Michigan accent and uh, from from where you got your start. Rich, where'd you get your start? Where'd you grow up? Right here in Colorado. Uh, by, by the way, thank you for having us. Uh, I grew up in eastern Colorado, a little town called Eads, which is just like Grand Junction, only different. <laughs> um, Fewer traffic the, lights. Yes. Went to the uh, University of Southern Colorado, which is now CSU Pueblo. Uh, my junior year of college, I interned for one of the gentlemen of the Senate at the time, Senator Bill Armstrong, who is mm. a good friend of the Western Slope, but especially Western Slope water. Um, and after college, started on a campaign headquartered here in Grand Junction for uh, Mike Strang against Ben Nighthorse Campbell. That led to a series of campaigns, Terry Considine, Bruce Benson, uh, and then started my tenure in national politics in 1997 when I became a regional political director for the Republican National Committee, worked on President Bush's uh, 2000 and 2004 campaigns, uh, political director at the Republican National Committee in 2007, 2008, Governor Romney's uh, deputy campaign manager in 2012, and Marco Rubio's deputy campaign manager in 2016. Um. Right out of college, your first gig was back here in Grand Junction. Was that your first trip to the Western Slope, or did you had you been over here before? That is a great question. I, uh, if I had been, it hadn't been very much because as close as Grand Junction is to Utah is how close I was to Kansas, where I grew up. Needs, so that's right. we were at uh, complete opposite ends of the state. But uh, I fell in love with the Grand Valley during my time here. Uh, my office was out on Horizon Drive, and uh, I got to drive all over the third district, which at the time was the eighth largest congressional district in the country. And so I got to see some beautiful country. Well, you you both have had a varied and and um, distinguished career in in politics, and I, you know, you all came and you, you lectured with some students earlier today, and listening to you both, I'm I'm just struck by the depth of the portfolio that you both have, and so in some respects, um, there's there's very few people who are better equipped to have this conversation about the um, the evolution of what's happened in our public square and in and in the political dialogue. Katie, you you referenced Donald Trump, but before we go there, because there's a lot there, um, I think back to the 2008 cycle when Barack Obama was sort of this historic candidate. Um, and, and I think about that moment felt, I think, in some regards, like a pretty intense moment. It seems positively romantic in the rearview mirror, but Talk us through, maybe maybe it wasn't that cycle, maybe it was some other cycles, but um, your observation about the evolution of, just frankly, the quality of the discussion and the narrative between the parties and, and how you saw that develop in a pre-Trump world. Wow, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think uh, it's when you look back at that time, it's sort of hard to separate the political world from the world. Hmm. 
that um, before we had social media really is kind of where I see the line of demarcation. Sure. People behaved better in politics and everywhere that, um, you know, there were always racists in our culture, but they were sort of quietly racist behind closed doors. There were always misogynists in our culture, but they were quiet misogynists behind closed doors. There was some shame involved with it. Um, I do think that what I've seen since sort of the advent of social media, which really came about in about 2008, Mm -hmm. um, it was when, you know, Facebook was really kind of the first um, social media engine that... uh, engaged itself in politics that all of a sudden you know where you might have one guy in a neighborhood who was an ultra racist he didn't talk much about it outside of to his family but all of a sudden on social media he was able to connect with the guy in the next neighborhood and the lady in the next neighborhood and then somebody in the next county in the next state and um, all of a sudden they felt a community of people, and so there was less shame about ideas and opinions um, than there had been prior to that, and um, certainly that found its way into politics, where um, you would, you know, get people showing up at an at events, maybe objecting to somebody on tax policy yeah. in 1996. Um, all of a sudden, in 2008. You know, I witnessed, you know, people walking right up to Mitt Romney at the Iowa State Fair and calling his grandson Devil's Spawn because he was Mormon. Where an idea like that might not have found its way to a person's lips directed at a candidate 20 years earlier, there was kind of this evolution of people feeling very comfortable saying whatever was on their mind right to a candidate. And that mm-hmm. was a pretty stark change. Rich, when you when you hearken back to those um, late 80s, early 90s campaigns across Colorado, it also strikes me that those were, uh, there maybe was, was less difference between Republicans and Democrats than there are today. But I think my recollection is your first campaign was a, a Strang-Campbell campaign. Is that right? Correct. So probably emblematic of the evolution but can for those who maybe don't know who those two or one of those two are can you kind of give us a little bit of a sense of that because I think it helps it helps contextualize the evolution of what we're talking about of what those kind of campaigns looked like in western Colorado yes 30 years ago Uh, Mike Strang had been a congressman who was elected in 1984 was defeated in the uh, 1986 election by Ben Nighthorse Campbell, who is a uh, state legislature from Ignacio in the southwestern part of the state. Uh, Mike sat out a term and then in 1988 uh, decided, 19, early 1989, decided he would challenge Ben Nighthorse Campbell for his old seat. Um, but, you know, Ben Nighthorse Campbell went on to become a multi-term congressman, a United States senator who ultimately switched parties, mm. um, became a Republican United States senator, served with Senator Wayne Allard. Uh, you know, those those were days when uh, Republican and Democrat politics were um, less 
uh, pugilistic, I guess is a good mm. way to put it. You know, we had Bill Owens, we had Wayne Allard, you had, you know, in the 80s, you had Bev Bledsoe as the Speaker of the House. You had, you know, Republicans and Democrats working across the aisle, uh, whether it was with Gary Hart or Roy Romer or Wayne Allard, or uh, with Bill Owens. And it, it was sort of emblematic across the country. You had, you know, George W. Bush, who had been the president or the governor of Texas. You, know, you just had kind of that type of Republican that was uh, thoughtful, could, you know, di- didn't view Democrat as a dirty four letter word and could sort of interact with the members of the other party. Mike Strang was homeschooled, grew up outside of Golden, ended up going to Yale. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, was a well, well-educated sort of Renaissance man, very thoughtful, um, held, you know, he was, he was pro-choice at a time when, you know, uh, hmm. it, that wasn't allowed in a lot of places, but Mike was a pro-choice Republican. And so it was, those were much different times. And to Katie's point, it was long before there was ever social media. We didn't even, you know, there were no cell phones. And so you, you relied on letters to the editor. You relied on op-eds. You relied on editorial board meetings. And that's how you sort of got your message out. It wasn't instantaneous and it didn't have 55 people responding to it immediately with some sort of comment about their looks or their weight or their accent or, you know, any number of things that was not germane to any sort of issue. Hmm. Yeah. As you, as you guys talk about the, some of those earlier campaigns and the evolution, I mean, yeah, I even think about that Dole Clinton campaign and it it just seemed like a far more civil disagreement about sort of what was happening in America versus um more recently. So as you as you fast forward a little bit, um you know, you brought up 2008 that that time period where maybe there was some kind of a line with social media. Fast forward to 2012, you now have a the first black president has served one term, is running for re-election, and you both find yourself on the campaign of um, former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, who I think by many standards was viewed as one of the more moderate Republicans probably in the country, I think, and he pioneered some of what ultimately became Obamacare and a variety of things like that that just, again, feel almost like a bygone era at this point. But talk to us a little bit about what that, um, what that campaign looked and felt like from the inside, because you both had sort of a catbird seat to to watch that unfold. Yeah, I think um, you know that there there was a time when uh, a lot of the uncivilized behavior was kept behind closed doors, <laughs> and it wasn't the candidates themselves that were engaging in it. Um, you know, I was kind of chuckling earlier in this week as I was as we were talking about this issue of civility in politics for anybody that has seen Hamilton you know that was a pretty uncivilized set of circumstances that led one person to challenge another person to a duel (laughs) for the unforgivable sin of suggesting that they weren't qualified for office and somebody lost their life over that Hmm. And, you know, it wasn't over personal scandal. It was somebody saying, look, I don't think this person is fit to serve. (laughs) And so they were challenged to a duel over it. Um, In the campaign of 2012, there certainly were a lot of things happening behind the scenes that people might, you know, think were not very civilized. You know, as we were developing strategy 
to go after our primary opponents, you know, we certainly wouldn't have wanted a documentary filmmaker in there <laughs> looking at, you know, the kind of opposition research that we were digging up and how we would look to frame things to make sure. our opponents look. And I think, um, you know, in in the mirror of 2022, both my husband and I have looked back and, you know, had some sort of self-reflection on our role in um, a process that sometimes was did not feel very civilized yeah. and did not feel um, designed to be completely fair, um, but was very aggressive and very nasty. I will say that in that campaign, the person that always was mindful of kind of bringing us back to the idea of public service and the idea of the nobility of all this was Mitt Romney. Hmm. He was always the adult in the room. And I think that's part of the reason things are so different today is that in the era of Donald Trump, um, both in his campaigning and in his presidency, I don't think anybody would be confused as to think that he was the adult in the room in any of these conversations, that he was always the person that was going to take it to the next level and was going to go farther across the line. And one of the things that does keep it all civil is that there's somebody with some power putting the bumpers on the bowling lane and making mm. sure that the ball doesn't go into the gutter. And it's really important for the for the top dog, I think, to play that role. It's interesting you, you frame it that way because it, it does seem like historically, you know, campaigns have relied on the name on the ballot to say, uh, I'm not sure I want my name associated with that mailer or that ad or mm-hmm. um, that line of attack or something like that. And when that filter is gone, well, what happens? And and we've seen that. Rich, as, as you kind of watched some of this stuff unfold at a, maybe at a more um, organizational level and so forth, did you see a different kind of Um, Have you seen different kind of personalities involving themselves in politics or is it simply the same kind of personalities that have always been there that are engaging differently? A little bit of a hybrid, not to, you know, answer both ways, but it's a little bit of a hybrid in that there are just certain things about, you know, the politics, just like the, the law of gravity that every, you know, there's the law of gravity in politics. There are some things that are true no matter what the cycle, what the candidate, you know. But there are also unique factors. Given the year we were running against an incumbent president who was the first black president in the history of the United States and the, you know, the storied history of our country, um, you know, that that certainly had a lot to do with it. Not a lot of incumbent presidents get defeated. Um, you got, you know, the last one was George H. W. Bush in 1992. So it it was a historically an uphill battle on a mm. number of fronts. Um, and then just to win the primary, you're going to places like Iowa, the the most evangelical state in the country with a Mormon candidate. Then you go to uh, New Hampshire, the least evangelical state in the country hmm. uh, with a Mormon candidate. We knew what our strengths and weaknesses were. Uh, and then as you played the primary calendar, I, I likened it to, uh, you know, being from Colorado, a mogul patch that you had to pick your line. And we saw where our line was. And as we went through the primary, you had Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich who were splitting the hardcore evangelical vote, the evangelicals that did not want to vote for a Mormon candidate. As long as they both stayed in the mid-20s, 
and Mitt Romney, we could guarantee about 30 to 35 percent of the vote in every state. We would keep winning primaries and just keep racking up delegates. Our goal was to get to 1,144 delegates and win the nomination. And as we went through the primary calendar from winner take all states to proportional states, knowing exactly what threshold we had to get in each state, we mapped out the run to 1144. Hmm. Which, by the way, included places like American Samoa and Guam that people don't <laughs> normally think of as having yeah, uh, delegate votes, skin right. in the game. <laughs> we sent uh, the candidate's sons to both of those places. They had to fly to Japan and then catch a flight from Japan back to Guam. Uh, but they showed up, and we got all of those delegates. So on a day when uh, Rick Santorum won some states, uh, some southern states, Alabama, Kansas, Kansas we we one of American Samoa, Guam, and a handful of others and actually beat him in delegates that day. Sort of like the Colorado equivalent of Sedgwick or uh, Dolores, right? Yes, exactly, in caucus, yeah, in the, in the caucuses. And so, yeah, the, a lot of similarities. I think growing up in a caucus state sort of helped me learn how to count noses like that. Yeah, so. I'm sure. You, you both have committed a, an entire, I mean, your adult lives to the public square. And, and I wonder before we maybe peel the onion back a little bit further on, um, maybe 2016 moving forward, can you, can you share with our audience, you know, these campaigns are tough and you've both, I mean, between the two of you, I'm, I'm not even sure we've counted them up, but a lot of campaigns, that's really, really challenging work. Um, what is it that motivated you individually and, and how did you see sort of this um, call to service, or maybe it was something else, I don't know, but share with us a little about the motivation and the, what's kept you in this business all these years. I think for me, um, you know, I grew up um, with parents that really spent a lot of time talking about sort of the permanent things, if you will, um, and, things that really matter. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I got out of college, but I knew that I wanted to do something that felt like it mattered. Hmm. And I had always loved history. Um, you know, my parents both were born and raised in the United Kingdom and spent their childhood living, you know, under the threat of Hitler in World War II. And, um, you know, they spent a lot of time talking about how leadership matters and how um, the world might be a different place had Winston Churchill not been the prime minister at the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it just always instilled in me a sense of, um, you know, who we elect matters. And more than the specific belief that they have on a particular tax policy the, the big d historical decisions that come across a leader's desk, certainly, you know, at high level politics are not usually the things that they run on. The things that matter, you know, on 9-11, it was important that there was somebody in the White House who showed wisdom and showed discretion and mm. had a sense of history. Mm -hmm. It mattered when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. It mattered who was sitting at that desk with the power to retaliate. Um, all of these things matter. 
And I think that was always kind of in the back of my mind, um, you know, the history of it all. And uh, I remember I was working for a U.S. senator from Michigan, Spence Abraham, and he he used to love to tell the story about when he first was elected to the U.S. Senate, um, and he was waiting to ask a question of, uh, I, I think it was Janet Reno, I think it was under Clinton, um, when she was uh, up for attorney general and she was coming before the Judiciary Committee for confirmation. Mm-hmm. And because he was the most junior senator, he had to wait for days to ask one question hmm. because that's how long these hearings took and these questions took. And on the third day, somebody passed him a note and he opened it up and it said, don't feel bad. I remember when I had to wait three days to ask my own brother a question in this same room. And it was a note from Teddy Kennedy (laughs) in regard to his brother being up for confirmation uh, for attorney general. And um, so, you know, things like that, you just have a sense of history that you're kind of walking these halls and going down these paths. But, you know, somebody was running a campaign for, Thomas Jefferson at at some point. Somebody was running a campaign for Abraham Lincoln at some point. And, you know, your job may be sort of temporary, but the role that you play and the people that you help elect become a part of history permanently. And there was always something intriguing about that to me. Hmm. Rich, what about you? What what got you into this world? And maybe is importantly, what kept you (laughs) in this world? Mine, uh, not not quite so noble, although (laughs) Katie and I did find out uh, we we took a little trip through our family history. And uh, uh, one of my ancestors in uh, Dodge City, Kansas, was the head of security for the Bull Moose Convention with Teddy (laughs) Roosevelt. So 300 armed men keeping uh, the peace at the Bull Moose Convention is it was Chalkley Beeson. So fast forward to 1979. you know, the hostages had been in Iran for 444 days. And the day that Ronald Reagan was inaugurated was the day that they were released. And that that really had an impact on me as far as my politics and my sort of my view of the world that I knew we wanted a strong national defense. We wanted somebody who could stand up to the Russians who could win the Cold War. Uh, Ronald Reagan sort of fit that bill in a, in a lot of ways and, and, and accomplished that. And as you fast forward, you marry that with my, you know, I was in, in athletics in college, certainly not at the level you were, but uh, in college athletics regardless. Just to say a C minus or <laughs> <Yeah>. what? <laughs> and, uh, and you marry that with the competitiveness of, of athletics that I, I saw politics and especially campaigns. I didn't, I didn't care as much for the legislative side as the campaign side, that it was a battle of ideas. Mm. And I believed that our ideas were better than their ideas. And if we could just go out and, uh, you know, take care of the strategy and the tactics and win campaigns, that our ideas would prevail. And that campaigns were great competitions. They, you know, you, you laid them out in the public square and people voted them up or voted them down. And there was a winner and a loser on election day. And mm. that really appealed to me and my sort of sense of justice and and right and wrong and competitiveness. And competitiveness, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah that you do, if you have never been on a campaign, it is hard to describe, I think, in some ways, the excitement and the, um, the, the sometimes heady nature mm-hmm. of it. And uh, I, I think it was you, Katie, that said you can never go back to not knowing what it was like to 
to serve on these things. Um, and yet they're incredibly challenging and taxing and, and require a deep sense of, um, of buy-in to the mission, right? And so as you, as you chat with folks on both sides of the aisle who've you know, kind of come up through, through many of these difficult fights, I think it's, it's really instructive to, to get a sense as to what's helping drive and motivate those folks doing that work. And, and maybe that's a good way to pivot to, um, the last eight years, um, or, or six years, I guess it is. It feels like longer than that, but 2016 forward, Katie, I, you know, Rich, you chatted about the fact you were in the midst of that Republican primary for a Senator from, uh, Florida by the name of Marco Rubio would have been probably the youngest and first, um, one of the first ethnic minority candidates on the Republican side, seems like. Katie, what were you doing in 2016? Because I think it helps inform some of this conversation as well. Well, I I was done with presidential politics. I, um, at least temporarily, I just was kind of worn out by it and mm. wasn't going to get involved. Um you know, Rich and I were a couple and he was involved with Marco Rubio. And so I, you know, was sort of loosely supportive of Marco Rubio, um, but just not engaged in the campaign at all. And there was a really pivotal moment for me, which I came in probably August or September of 2015. Hmm. Um, You know, Donald Trump had come on the scene. He was somebody who, um, had been involved in our campaign in 2012. He endorsed Governor Romney. And of course, with his endorsement came his opinions and his advice. Um, So we had interacted with him quite a bit in 2012 and really just thought of him as kind of a joke, honestly. I didn't find him to be very smart or insightful. Um, He was very media savvy. I would always give him that, but um, not somebody who I found to be wise or... um, just smart in terms of public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he first started flirting with the idea of running and then announced his candidacy, I was, I kind of laughed it off. I, I didn't think anybody would take him too seriously because I didn't take him very seriously. Mm. Um, you know, and then I started to see him gain a little bit of traction. And what really changed things for me was when he um, made this remark, um, which I think most people have by now seen or heard, um, regarding John McCain, where mm. he said, um, he was a hero, I guess. I mean, he was captured. I like my heroes to not be captured, you know, kind of denigrating somebody who had served by any account. I mean, anybody even who doesn't, uh, didn't yeah. agree with John McCain yeah, that stood a- on the opposite side of him on issues would certainly not question the fact that he behaved heroically um, in the face of unbelievable um, persecution in Vietnam. Um, And Donald Trump, who had, you know, found his way out of serving because of wealth and privilege, made this comment. And I thought, well, he's done. Certainly in a Republican primary, that's a comment yeah. that you you've been around politics long from. enough. You see what that looks like. You're, yeah. you're, you got to be finished. right? Absolutely. And he was not. He paid no price for that. And that was the moment when I said, this guy has some has some real traction and he could win this thing. And I was watching these candidates. There was I don't remember how many candidates there were in the primary, but a lot. Yeah, it seemed like a lot. 
And they all seem to be taking this strategy that if I can get to the end and be one-on-one -on -one against Trump, I can beat Trump. So I'm not going to attack him now. I'm going to attack all these other guys. And I saw this as a very flawed premise that if nobody attacked Donald Trump and he got to the end and was head to head with somebody, he was going to win the primary, mm. which was just an unthinkable thing to me. And so I, you know, worked together with a couple of other people, um, one of whom was a guy named Todd Ricketts, <laughs> who very wealthy, uh, you know, Ricketts family that owns the Chicago Cubs, you know, his brother's governor of Nebraska. I mean, you know, very prominent family, very deep pockets. Um, he went on to serve in the Trump administration. But, um, you know, this team of people that said, we've got to do what we can to stop Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so we put together a super PAC called Our Principles PAC, uh, mistakenly thought that if we really highlighted um you know, Donald Trump's duplicitousness on virtually every issue relating to Republican politics um, or Republican orthodoxy, I should say, um, as well as, you know, kind of shining a spotlight on his failed business record um, that maybe we could, you know, kind of uh, shake things up and get people to see him for who he was. Yeah. And um, it was a totally failed enterprise. <laughs> The, the, the one success we had was that we succeeded in making sure that he did not win the Iowa caucuses, which we hoped would derail him and give somebody. We didn't. I mean, at that point, we were kind of like anybody is better. So mm -hmm. whoever can win the Iowa caucuses and then go on to win New Hampshire and South Carolina. But we're just going to help keep him down in Iowa and then let things go from there. And um, we did that and did not. We kind of spent all of our money on that effort, and it just wasn't enough moving forward. But that was really, you know, I I am sometimes called as the original never Trumper, <laughs> um, and I think it's because I I just wasn't engaged in the primaries and I wasn't on a campaign, and so I was very clear-minded in seeing what I saw to be a threat not only to the country, but almost a deathly threat to the Republican Party. Hmm. So we we watch this unfold from 2016 moving forward, um, January 6th, et cetera, and, and kind of the entirety of the, the presidency, which is almost too many individual moments to, to measure. I mean, I think at one point, I remember chatting with you guys a couple of years ago, and it just felt exhausting, right, where we were maybe from a, a bygone era where you'd maybe have an issue come up every few weeks and you know, something would happen and it would shake up politics. And, and it just seemed like for four straight years, it was, it wasn't even once a day. It was like multiple times a day. I mean, just absolutely exhausting watching that all unfold. And, and so here we are, we find ourselves, you know, kind of six years post-mortem from that election, walking into the next election and feeling like, um, is this the new normal? And I, I wonder what your, your sense of this is, is there is there a way for us to unwind some of this? Is there a way for us to put this genie back in the bottle in terms of some of the, I mean, incivility seems too polite of a word, but I'm not sure what else to call it. Just the, the ugliness that seems to have almost gone on steroids. 
Um, I think I'm more hopeful today yeah. than I was a few years ago. Um, it it got to a point of ugliness and toxicity for me, um, you know, by by uh, in 2016. By, by the end of the election in 2016, I was working for MSNBC as a regular contributor um, on, you know, their news programs and, you know, was every day kind of the Republican taking on Trump. Oh, I um, see. Uh-huh. Which is, you know, something MSNBC likes in terms of, you know, the dialogue and the debate on their show. And after... The election, it was clear that that's what they kind of wanted me to do permanently. And I just said, you know, I don't think I can do this. I don't think that I can spend every day trying to tear down the president of the United States. Like the whole, my whole political career has been committed to the idea that once the election's over, we're all Americans and we have to support our president. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't see a scenario where I could commit myself to that every day. And then they said, okay, thanks. Well, we'll go find somebody who <laughs> is willing to do that. And ultimately, I left politics completely. And I, I own a little market up in Grand Lake. It's and a lovely, I, lovely store. <laughs> I worry about egg prices and, you know, how we're going to get our hands on tomato products when there's a drought in California now. You know, so, um, but I do... I do see, um, you know, and I I don't want to blame the whole thing on Trump because I do think that Trump is more a reflection of the culture at large and of what Mm -hmm. people are demanding. Um, I wonder also, Katie, not to interrupt you, but I, I wonder if those things are true and with the advent of social media in terms of now you both have the tool as well as, or tools, plural maybe, and this dynamic you're describing of unlocking it and then a particular person who helps to, what, amplify it? Something yeah, like this? Yeah, all of that perfect storm that swirls together. And it's and it has brought down the whole debate. Hmm. It's not just him. It's not just Republicans. You know, I was um, watching a documentary the, the other day that showed a clip from the first Trump-Biden presidential debate Oh, uh-huh. where... Trump, you know, President Trump, then President Trump is debating former Vice President Joe Biden and is just talking and talking and talking and keeps interrupting. And finally, Joe Biden, you know, one of the senior statesmen of the United States Senate and a two term vice president of the United States just turns and says, would you shut up? And I it was kind of jarring to think of this particular person uttering those words at the president of the United States in such a public forum. But because of what we've seen <laughs> over the last eight years, it it doesn't even seem shocking anymore. It's mm. like sort of the least shocking thing. But I do think that as people have grown tired of it and sort of exhausted by it, um, that people are less tolerant of it. And I and I'd like to think that the pendulum will swing back um, where people just don't want to see and hear so much ugliness all day, every day. Well, it does in Colorado in particular, this election cycle, maybe to your earlier comment, has it seems like uh, cracked a door toward a more hopeful path forward where maybe the candidates for whatever disagreements they have are a little less um, 
radioactive maybe than than what could have been this particular cycle. I think about even in our own backyard, our, our former county clerk and recorder, well, I guess she's still technically our clerk and recorder, although she doesn't do her job anymore and isn't allowed to do her job by law. Um, but an example of those places where it could have been pretty ugly in Colorado in terms of the various candidates running. And and voters seem to have reflected what you just described, that maybe we can chart a little bit more moderate path. Now, heaven knows who wins these these elections in a few weeks, but but it seems to me that maybe there's a glimpse of hope just in the nature of the candidates. And and Rich, I want to turn back to you as as you think a little bit about the path forward. What do you think are some things that either maybe give you hope or things that you think may may be possible toward a more civil and and maybe substantive? I don't know what the right way to say it is, but maybe an adult conversation in our politics. Well, by nature, I'm a glass half full kind of person. And so I think I, I sort of have to force myself to, to be like that, regardless of, you know, 2016 was my fifth and last presidential campaign because those political laws that I talked about, so many of them have been shattered completely mm, yeah. that I just felt like I, I didn't know, you know, what was up and what was down anymore. And so it was time for me to, to walk away from presidential campaigns. But I am, I am hopeful in that you've seen to your point about Colorado and over the last cycle, we'll see what the presidential is like and how it unfolds. But the bellicosity does seem to really have ratcheted down a little bit, Mm. that there's not this sort of personal nature to everything. You can disagree with President President Biden about inflation and about, you know, the canceling uh, college debt. Uh, There's all sorts of substantive policy issues you can disagree with him on without getting so personal and Mm -hmm. you still see the personal stuff out there but there seems to be a lot more of a dialogue hopefully moving forward about you know the pocketbook issues the things that we used to talk about in campaigns and and to motivate voters not about the personal aspect or dragging his son into it or other you know candidates family members uh you know i think the o'day and and bennett uh race to your point has been you know, sort of like an old time Senate race. You know, it's it's uh, there's not the personal stuff, you know, the the, the attacks. It's, it's been for the most part on substantive policy yeah. issues. And so that's been refreshing to see. Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of moderating the a debate between the candidates for attorney general sitting sitting A.G. Phil Weiser and um, John current, Kellner. Uh, John Kellner. And, you know, and I had several people ahead of time. Say, oh, man, that, you know, that's going to be. That's going to be rough, and it was it was an entirely substantive debate. Mm-hmm. The two of them disagree on a variety of of topics that you would expect, you know, different candidates for AG to disagree on. But they were civil. They were gentlemen. They they were direct with one another. But there were no cheap shots. Um, and it seems to me more of those. The more we can figure out how to celebrate that kind of a discussion, um, is is good more broadly for our our body politic. But that goes back to the kind of person that those two people are, and mm. that's why it matters. Character does matter, mm. and who, a, how a human being behaves in polite society matters. Um, I was watching a show the other day um, that some folks may have heard of called The Problem with Jon Stewart, and uh, he, was inter- he was talking about race. This episode was about race. I see. And he was talking to Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, and Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. And, you know, the, the only, the fourth and fifth 
duly elected uh, senators that were African-American in our nation's entire history. And they were talking about race issues and had so much common ground Hmm. and talking about how they have worked together and been each other's very best partners in issues affecting the African-American community across the country. Things you don't hear about much on the evening news. I don't think I've ever heard about any of them. Yeah. And they talked about the fact that they can both agree that they love America and that loving America is loving Americans Mm. and sort of understanding that we need to try to have each other's best interest at heart, not just our own best interest at heart. But if we can actually care about each other, then we can move the needle. And um, I was really struck by it. And I, I watched it. And then the next day I went back and I showed it to Rich. And I said, this is what gives me hope. Mm-hmm. If one of the most liberal members of the U.S. Senate and one of the most conservative can come together and solve problems. Um, and they joked about one of the big negotiations they were having was in one of the buildings or one of the rooms in the Capitol. And as they walked in, they looked up and realized they were in the Strom Thurmond room. Wow. One of the, you know. The, the historical U.S. senators that was considered to be very anti-black. Um, yeah, filibustered the civil rights act. Has changed, yeah. That this is progress. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that you would be here at CMU to have this conversation. I think we are more committed than ever as a campus to trying to find those things that unite us rather than those things that divide us and trying to find a way to bring uh, a space for students from all stripes that um, can find a way to uh, belong and feel welcome here. And, and I think this conversation around, you know, whether it's the CMU Civic Forum or hosting various debates and so forth, I think, you know, you all giving of your time and being willing to spend time with students and, and engaging in conversations that matter, I think, bit by bit, this is how we do it. And so I just want to earnestly say thank you for making time and having this conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, With that, we will um, wind down another episode of our CMU Now podcast. Please tune in next time. Bye-bye.